So I hope you're enjoying things so far. Um, in a second, we're going to hear from uh, the editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, who's going to be interviewed by Steve Hewlett. Uh, but before we do that... OK. <laughs> He's a, a loyal supporter... A loyal supporter, but is he a digital subscriber? Um, but before we do that, I, on a serious note, I just want to take five minutes before we come to, to Alan um, to think of a, a, perhaps a bigger issue about uh, journalism and threats <coughs> to journalism. We're going to get a very brief statement here from the managing director of Al Jazeera English, Al Anstey. Would you please come up, Al? Thanks. Thank you, Charlie, and uh, thank you as well to Steve and Alan for eating into their time. I'm going to be brief this morning. In the last eight weeks, over 40,000 people have been actively involved in the campaign to free our staff from detention in Egypt, to stand up for journalism, and to defend the right for us, for journalists, to do our job. So I'm very grateful for five minutes this morning to renew the call to free our four and to say a sincere thanks to all of those in the media, many people in this room and elsewhere outside of the media, to people for their support of our four and for the campaign. The last report Al Jazeera English filed from Cairo was 92 days ago. Working on that report was Mohammed Fami, Baha Mohammed and Peter Greste. Peter, the veteran of the BBC and CNN, and Al Jazeera. His outstanding work is known worldwide. Mohammed, a great journalist too, who worked for the New York Times and CNN before joining Al Jazeera English. And Baha, a veteran of Egypt coverage, who worked for Asahi Shimbun before he joined Al Jazeera. Great journalists and great journalism in particularly challenging times. That report and all of the other material we do from Egypt and elsewhere is there for all to see online and there for all to scrutinise. Ninety days ago, the police arrived at the Marriott Hotel in Cairo and arrested Peter and Mohammed. Zali, releasing the video of the arrest, set to dramatic music just a few days later. The same day, Bahir's home was stormed by police who blew down the door, shot his dog, arrested him, and left his family, his wife and his children in absolute fear. They were charged with supporting a terrorist organisation and spreading false news. They joined in detention Al Jazeera Arabic reporter and journalist Abdullah al-Shami, who was arrested covering the violence in Rabia and has now been behind bars for over seven months. The charges are clearly absurd. There's nothing that stands up to scrutiny in them at all. You don't have to know our staffers and the integrity that they have. You just have to watch our content to know how false those allegations are. AJE has operated with integrity since its first day on air seven years ago. We're proud of our content. We recognise the responsibility to always strive to get it right. We stand up to scrutiny on every story we do, no matter where it's taking place. And we've won awards and acclaim 
for our coverage of Egypt and elsewhere. But more than the awards and the acclaim, I'm personally very proud of our staff. They're among the most talented and the most diverse team of journalists in the world, people who share a passion for storytelling and integrity. But as we all know, good journalism is about covering and challenging all sides of stories. For those in power who so often only want one side to be heard, that can upset. In Egypt, we face challenges in doing our job under Mubarak, and again under Morsi, but even more so since the coup in July last year. The constraints opposed, imposed upon us has been multi-led and concerted. Our people arrested, our transmissions blocked, posters put up in Cairo inciting violence against us and other journalists working in the field, people in debate shows claiming to work for us who never did, threats to our staff to resign or face the consequences. The CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists, have described these events as unprecedented. In response to the detention of our people, we started a simple call, release our staff, and stand up for people's right to be heard and people's right to be informed. The campaign that has grown to free them is about journalism itself. On February the 2nd, Jessica Hatcher, a journalist working for Time magazine based in Kenya, <laughs> took the initiative to tape up her mouth outside the Egyptian embassy during a gathering of journalists in Nairobi, where Peter's based. That selfie went viral. The Free AJ staff hashtag really went global. Journalist organisations across the globe have joined the stand in solidarity with a focus on the release of our four, but the campaign has also widened to be a call to defend journalism itself and the rights and the freedoms that good journalists protect. The Free AJ staff hashtag has trended worldwide and continues to be viral. These figures are from just over a week ago, but they show the continuing solidarity. Over 40,000 people have sent 89,000 tweets, reaching 84 million Twitter users, delivering 720 million impressions on Twitter. We've had on-the-record support from the EU, from the United Nations, and twice the White House have put this on the record. Protests have taken place and gatherings have taken place in over 30 countries in every continent of the world. Nearly 100,000 people have signed the petition to free our staff. We appreciate the solidarity, and we really appreciate the support. Our guys are back in court next Monday. We expect a further adjournment. April the 7th marks 100 days in prison for the AJE three members of staff, Peter, Mohammed, and Baha, and 235 days in prison for Abdullah. We're deeply concerned for them and for their continued detention. We need to keep up the pressure. There's no doubt the threat to journalism, the threat to journalists, is widespread and worldwide. We're the focus now, but look elsewhere as well. Look at Venezuela. Look at the pressures on the media in Japan. Look at the intimidation of journalists in Hong Kong. It is journalism itself that is increasingly challenged, and journalists are the targets of that challenge. The Free AJ staff campaign shows we have an opportunity, but we also have a responsibility to capitalise on the solidarity shown by journalists in recent weeks, 
to leverage the support shown by our collective audiences, to make sure the legacy of this sorry injustice is that journalism is more protected in all corners of the world. So thank you once again. And let's continue to stand together and work together to protect our rights as journalists, but ultimately to protect the freedoms of those that we cover. Thank you. We can start. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Steve Hewlett. This, as you will all know, uh, is Alan Rusbridger. Uh, we've got about uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, we'll look to do some Q&A towards the end, so do be thinking of uh, questions and contributions that uh, you might want to make, and Alan has uh, graciously uh, agreed to take some when we get there. So um, there's, there's quite a lot to talk about, I think, potentially. So we'll, just to get straight started, uh, Al there was talking about journalists being locked up in Egypt. Uh, in all seriousness, was there ever a point in the course of the Snowden affair when you thought you might be locked up? Uh, well, it's, it, it theoretically still could happen um, that the police started looking into our journalism at some point last autumn, and as far as I know they still are. Uh, I would find it incredible if they were to actually come and try and lock up the editor of the Guardian, but they've done some incredible things along the route, so... Um, I, I don't think it's going to happen, but, 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 but I think this police investigation is still happening. Was there ever any serious consideration, do you think, about shutting the newspaper or doing something, well, I do, doing I do, something serious? I do, I do, when they said, close you down... Um, they said that. They became, I think they meant close down the reporting. I don't think they actually meant close down the Guardian. Um, but they certainly wanted to close down the reporting uh, in as much as they could. Do you think that's because, I mean, were they, were they primarily concerned because of what they knew Snowden had, or was it because they didn't know what Snowden had? Well, I, didn't, I don't think they did know what Snowden had, because the, the first meeting we had with the government, they said, we think you've got a lot of documents. We think you could have 30 or 40 documents. Um, um, you know, we had 58,000. Um, so um, so I, I think the truth was that, to begin with, they had no idea what he had. I mean, I, I, you, can understand, you can understand the position of a government uh, that they were desperately concerned. Um, uh, but I think there was something about the culture in this country that, that the intelligence agencies just are terribly bad at having any kind of relationship with the press at all and GCHQ in particular. Uh, and so I think there was a sort of hawkish element within the government that just said, make it stop, shut it down, send in the police, whatever, um, because, because they had no other experience uh, or, or, or ways of, of, um, of dealing with the situation. And on a personal level, how did they deal with you? I mean, was it at least... At least I mean, you, you know, you're Cambridge-educated and all that sort of stuff. You presume you know so many people, right? Uh, no, I don't, I don't I mean, it was, it was, it was, two people came to see me were Jeremy Hayward and Craig Oliver, the, the, the um, Dining Street press guy. Um, I know him from the BBC. Yeah, he's a tough guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, no, I'd never met Hayward before, so... Um, I mean, they, they were, on the surface, perfectly civilised conversations. This was, this was a problem, that, but... but 
as, as time went on, you sensed the hawks were in the ascendancy and they, would, they definitely were, they said, going to uh, either uh, pursue it through the criminal law or through the civil law, but, but they were determined to stop it. And we'll move on from this. I know you've discussed this before, but those pictures of the, of the hard drives, the story about the hard drives being destroyed, how did that come about? Because surely they must have realised that it was entirely futile. It was symbolic, yeah, we, well, it was right, symbolic at best because all kept, the stuff was somewhere else. <laughs> um, I kept discussing that with, with Hayward and saying, I don't understand. Even in your own terms, this doesn't make sense because we will go on reporting. We'll just report from New York. You'll lose control of the situation as, as they did. Um, and I think their response is, but we don't think you can keep it safely in this building. This building will come under attack. Um, I would have more faith in that as a reason if they had then gone to advise the New York Times or the Washington Post or Glenn Greenwald, because none, none of us wanted to leak this stuff accidentally. But if it had been a conversation, in fact, we had that conversation, why, why don't you give us some advice on security? Um, uh, and, but but he, he didn't have that conversation. And nobody from the British government had that conversation with anybody else. So that doesn't feel like a credible reason to me. So what, what do you think the real reason was behind smashing up the hard drives? Uh, I, I, I think, well, I, my guess is that there was, a, there was a hawkish element of the government who just said, we, we, we simply can't, uh, you know, it may be ridiculous, but we're just going to make, we'll, we'll make life harder for them. Uh, we've got to throw, there was a spook wrote a blog about it, an American spook, and he said it felt as though they were just throwing sand in the gears. They had to do something to slow us down and make it more complicated. Of all the things that are uh, the major elements of the Snowden revelations, mm. um, which do you think of as the most significant? I asked that, there was a session just before this, uh, in which uh, the, the question was asked by McCulloch mm. about whether the reaction, whether the whole thing, whether, the, whether it was sort of proportional. Mm. And there was uh, Ed uh, Lucas, then from The mm. Economist, was making the point that, you know, states spy on each other all the time, a French diplomat got expelled from the US in 19, 2006, I mean, the Germans are running operations here, there, and everywhere. So all of that kind of, mm. he would, I think, I, t I took him to mean, mm. pretty unexceptional, and we'd all probably be the worst if they weren't doing it. Of, this, of, of the range of things that Snowden has revealed, or have come from that source, what do you think of as the most significant? Well, I, I think it, it, the, the big picture of what technology can do in terms of keeping everybody in this room, everybody in this country under a form of surveillance, uh, was, I think, unknown by most people. Uh, and, the, the, and, and from that, you get into the complicity of the tech companies or, the, or the, the, innocent, the innocent or guilty complicity of the tech companies, the fact that all this infrastructure is piggybacking on, on private infrastructure, that the extent to which the cryptology of the web itself has been damaged or broken, so that that's the biggest issue about the future of the web. Uh, what that says about the, uh, um, the, the future of, uh, of digital innovation by Western companies, the, the future of international relations between countries, and, and in a democratic society, how is, this, how, how is it, how are you going to keep control of these technologies which are, as you say, useful um, to, the, to the spies, we understand that, but are potentially devastatingly menacing? And 
So, know, so it's, it's that so bigger picture. There was of a huge, data huge picture that, 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 that became revealed, and, and, the, and the trouble is that the, everyone tries to narrow the debate to a very narrow one between national security and, 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 and privacy, and it seems to me it's so much bigger than that. Do, do you accept that some of what Snowden released did or has damaged national security? Well, I've, I've seen no evidence. Okay, so, so Ed Lucas, again, in the mm. session before, says it's, it's by divulging capabilities, mm. uh, it's had a material effect. So, for example, by telling the South China Morning Post, whatever it was, how, to, uh, how they intercepted mm. SMS messages mm. whizzing around China, uh, they had tipped off, in effect, the Chinese authorities uh, in ways that were simply not helpful. He even went as far as to say that you know, the radio silence that Russia managed to operate under when it went into Crimea uh, was significantly enhanced. I took him to me. Forgive me if he's here and I've got this wrong, do correct me. I think he said that uh, that was directly as a result of things they had learned from what Snowden had revealed. And indeed, I imagine that you had taken upon publishing. Well, there have been lots of assertions, and, and, and Ed's book is full of assertions about you know, uh, that, that, that Snowden is really working with the KGB. Well, where's the evidence? Um, so, uh, you know, the, 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 the American intelligence agencies began by saying this had stopped 50 plots, the, these techniques. And then it got down to one plot. And then there was some doubt even over that plot. Um, so it's, it's terribly easy for people to drip stuff into the press and drip stuff into the, in, into the debate. But doesn't it stand to reason that if, 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 you disclose, if, you, if you're divulging capabilities, then you know, you're probably telling some people who would, who would wish to do you harm things that you'd rather, in the end, they shouldn't, they, you'd rather, we'd all rather didn't know? Well, I wish, I wish people would be specific, because I mean, I'll answer for what we did in The Guardian. And the only one that really people have raised with me is this stuff about the Tor project, which is, you know what Tor is. It, it, it's this thing that is funded by the State Department because it is about secure communication on, on the Internet. And the State Department view this as a good thing because it's, it enables dissidents to talk freely without, being, uh, without horrible things happening to them. Um, the, the NSA is trying to break this thing that the, that the State Department funds because they say it's also used by pedophiles and drug dealers. So both those things are true. And it's been put to me that by writing about this, The Guardian has made it easier for drug dealers and Al-Qaeda and things. But actually, if you know anything about the technology, you'll know that the Tor project itself has a website in which it keeps all this stuff up to date. And if you're the CTO of Al-Qaeda or a drugs network, you don't read The Guardian to find out this stuff. It's all there. Um, so the, the problem with, with trying to deal with these accusations is that they're so general. Uh, and when they come up with specific ones, like the Tor Project, they're nonsense. But, it, but there is, there is, it's, it's a serious point nonetheless, though, isn't it? That um, it, when dealing with matters of national security, almost by definition, uh, I, I wouldn't know what to make of this or that. I don't. Maybe you do, but I, you know, journalists to journalists, they find things out, and you know, publish and be damned, and so on and so on and so on. But in the area of national security, who's to say? What is there to say that the Guardian is, or you, or yeah. you're responsible for it? Who's to say that you are the right person, or you, it is the right organisation to decide mm. on its own account what should be published and what shouldn't? Well, that's a very, very big question about whether you think we should have a free press or not. So you can easily make the... the, the well, it's a responsible press, I might be arguing. Well, let's, let's start with free press. Um, 
So should the press be free to write about these things? Yes or no? The argument was then made, by, I think sadly, by some British journalists saying, if MI5 say trust us, we have to trust them. We're in no position not to trust them. I think that's a discreditable view for journalists to take. So how to, how, then you get on to responsible, how do responsible journalists work? And I think we've worked responsibly. We've had more than 100 contacts with the agencies on both sides of the Atlantic <coughs> um, trying to tease out um, the, the kinds of things that you're talking about. The, the, um, and, and sometimes we haven't printed things in, in, in response to the uh, representations they've made how many sometimes we have. Well, I mean, it might be a, a story in which you've got ten facts and you miss out one fact. So, but but is that, how, how common is that? How commonly have you redacted or taken stuff out or not published stuff that they've, where, where they've been given you to I, believe I, it's... It, it, a wild guess, I would say, on about half the stories, that there might, there might be one thing that they say, we, actually, we don't want you to write any of this, but if you are going to write it, let's, let's explain the background to this particular thing. And, and, and quite often we'd say, thank you for telling us that. We completely understand that. We'll, we'll miss that out. And quite often they would ring up afterwards and say, thank you very much. We really, think, we, we, we really respect the fact that we can have these conversations. So you, and these, this dialogue is still continuing? Yes. Do you think at any point you've had the wool pulled over your eyes <laughs> to reverse the position on the sixpence? Well, the... the, 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 the the first, um, the first tempora story, which was about the, um, the, the British telecom companies, um, I was, I was so, so we were negotiating with government under threat of injunction, um, and I, I left out the names of the companies, um, and I don't know whether that was right or wrong. They, they, Is that they, what they were they, asking they, to do? That, that was, that was a, an ask, so that, that wasn't... It wasn't a, I mean, these are the sort of difficult things that you're being asked to do. That, that actually wasn't, in my mind, a security question. It was an embarrassment question. It and was, if, if these companies are revealed to have taken part in these things, it's going to be embarrassing for them. Was it subsequently published? Was that the information? It, 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 that turned up in the Süddeutsche Zeitung at some point, and, and it's now in the public domain. Who were the companies? It was all the ones you'd expect. It was, you know, Vodafone, British Telecom, blah, blah, blah. And so the security services were asking you to leave those names out? Yeah. Uh, why? Because they, they felt, this was the thing they were most anxious about with that story was that, was the, it was an illogical argument, but it went like this. If, if, you, if you print this stuff, these companies will run for the hills, was how they put it. Um, so my response was... Meaning they'll cut off the security services? Well, they'll, they'll stop. They'll stop collaborating, cooperating in the way that they are. So my question was, do you mean they're doing things that they're not legally obliged to do? Um, and the answer and was? the answer was, no, 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 it's all legal. They have to do it. So how can they run for the hills? Um, so the, the argument wasn't, didn't hold water. But nevertheless, at that stage of the game, for various logistical reasons, um, I went along with that. I, but, I, but, but, but I think that gives a, a flavour of the... Of these, these, these discussions aren't always uh, black and white issues about if, if you publish this, you're, you're blowing uh, this capability. Um, 
which is going to lead to terrible things happening down the road. Do, do you think there's a chance that with the best will in the world and with the best of intentions, it, you may in fact have damaged national security in ways that... Well, I... I, um, I, I Does that worry you? I, I thought about it a, a lot, yeah, of course. Um, we, we didn't go into this uh, in any kind of cavalier fashion. We realised the, the seriousness of what we were writing about. Um, but I, I, I just have to repeat my answer. I, I don't know. Um, people may have other things to ask, but, and we'll come to that. But just look going forward. What do you think of the, sort of the implications of what, does, what has come out of Snowden? I mean, first of all, for the kind of state. So if, you, if, we, all, if we accept that a degree of surveillance is necessary, especially with you know, terrorism and one insurgency and one thing and another, re- real risks, mm. uh, and that that needs, by definition, to be secret, how do you balance that in this new world with appropriate scrutiny? Well, I think there, there are two issues. One, one is the laws... Uh, and many people think, in fact, I would say it was a, it was a, uh, a consensual position that, that actually the, the laws in this country are analog laws that have been stretched to breaking point to deal with a digital situation. So if, if, if at the end of this debate the British public and parliament decide that actually we, we, we're prepared to make this trade-off, then I think we ought to have up-to-date laws. There ought to be a frank debate in the, in the parliament and something should happen which didn't happen with the data comms bill, the so-called Snoopers Charter, where the guy who was chairing that, David McLean, was outraged to discover the capabilities exist, existed that he wasn't allowed to know about as the, the, the scrutineer of the, the committee that was looking at this law. So there has to, it has to begin with a debate. And, and everybody now, I think, from Obama and Clapper and, and, um, and the, the heads of the agencies have retreated to a position where they say, okay, we were silly to imagine that we couldn't have had a debate. So let's have a debate about the laws that frame this stuff and make that all open. Do you see that happening here? I mean, yeah, I'll tell you one about the US. It will happen. It has to happen here. You know, we're I mean, we're, we're operating under laws that were, in, were, were invented um, before Facebook, before Twitter, you know, during the first run funding phase of Google. These were analog laws that have been stretched to, to adapt to the digital world. So I think Cameron and Clegg and, and Miliband, if you speak to them privately, they say that there is going to have to be a point which we're going to have to debate this openly. I think they would like to do it after the next election. And the, the, the second bit that has to happen is you have to sort out the oversight. It's all very well to say journalists shouldn't be writing about this stuff. But there are serious balances which have to be made here between free speech and privacy, uh, between uh, with the, the, uh, about what's happening in, in these telecom companies, about the the process by which these things are agreed, we have to discuss what metadata is, and whether that is the same as phone billing, which is what the analog laws cover. To, to me, it's plainly not. Uh, so somebody has to oversee this, and at the moment it's Sir Malcolm Rifkin, uh, and we have to decide whether Sir Malcolm Rifkin, not him personally, but whether his committee is adequate. But in a situation, so what happened with this story is we started writing about in in June, and Westminster had nothing to say on the subject. Nothing to say on the subject until about October. So if, if you've got the political classes saying, actually, we don't want to discuss this, it's too hard, how could they simultaneously step forward and say, 
leave it to us, we'll look after the oversight, and by the way, you shouldn't be writing about it. I mean, you also had the rest of the press, or most, not, not all of it, but quite all of the rest of the press, you know, uh, at least sort of, as I say, you know, turning a deference towards you, but also, what, in yeah. some cases, actually going on to the, going on to the attack and, mm. you know, attacking the Guardian for making these revelations. Indeed, I think he said it in the other session, Ed Lucas and The Economist said, you know, that if, if Snowden had turned up at their door with his, with his box of tricks, they'd have taken him straight back to the police station. Uh, well, I don't believe that's the view of the editor of The Economist. Um, the, the, um, there was a very interesting story early on about, about the, the, the cryptology, which, which uh, was the one story where they begged us not to use, which we did use. Uh, and The Economist wrote a very good leader saying this was the most important story of all. What so, was the story in a nutshell? Well, it's, it's about how the, how the trapdoors were put into the, into the web by the, by the NSA and, and probably GTA. So that that's how they could then access secure... Uh, yeah. Communication listen listen to someone like Tim Berners-Lee, who built the web uh, and who understands these things. He, he regards this as absolutely disastrous for the future of the web. And The Economist saw that and, uh, and, and, and said that was the most important story of all. So I don't think Ed Lucas speaks for The Economist. Where did we, how do we get to that? Oh, um, <laughs> we're talking about the, the fact that the, the rest of the press... Oh, yeah, no, but, but, that, but that's... You see, and then the, 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 well, well, the colleague from Germany yeah. you know, said in the previous session, you know, very memorably, that, you know, you, you, appear, you mean the British have yeah. sort of rather romantic association with your security services. Yeah. So whereas we have the Stasi, you have James Bond. I, I had precisely this conversation last night. I was in, in, in Madrid last night with a bunch of European editors. And there was a German editor there who said, we had the Stasi and we had the Gestapo. And you, you've got Enigma and you've got James Bond. And, and we do have different views of our uh, security services. Um, so did, did, but but did, when you say the rest of the... I mean, actually, the rest of the press, if you take... The, the media around the world thought this was an exceptionally significant story and covered it obsessively. But not there, here. There were one or two papers here who didn't. Do, do you think then that... I mean, so your guess is that there will be... The, the debate that you, you say that you quite rightly I think, say it has to happen, you think that debate will happen here, that the issue will get opened up and talked about possibly after the next election? Well, I, I think this is going to be one of the big issues of the 21st century. This, you know, the... the the, the data that is contained in these tracking devices that we all willingly carry around with us um, and what that reveals about us and, and the degree to which the brain and the computer are now linked uh, and what happens when you put a filter between the brain and the computer. Uh, the, these are huge issues that are going to affect everything to do with, with uh, commerce, business life, uh, information about our health uh, and spying. And they're all incredibly interlinked because they're all using the same networks. So this is going to be a, a very, very big debate over the coming years. And spying is going to be one bit of it. Just, just one question before we move on that very rarely gets raised. I'm not quite sure why, because I know some people who are struggling with this practically. What are the implications for journalism and protecting sources and all of that of this, of this surveillance capacity that's built in the devices everybody uses? Enormous. I mean, I, I, I mean this, this, this is why the complacency of some bits of the British press astonish me. I mean, I, I think every, every journalist should assume, should assume that there is no such thing as confidential digital communication. So, so therefore, we none of us have confidential sources. And if we're, if, we're, we're, if we're telling our sources that we will keep them confidential and we don't understand the technology, then we're being really irresponsible. And you think most journalists and most organisations don't, really? I, I, I don't think they begin to, to 
to, 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 deal, to deal with it, and even, even the papers we've been operating with. But, you know, because this, this peer-to-peer uh, encryption is, it's not, it's not impossible, but it's difficult for most, for most journalists, and it's a bit time-consuming, and most journalists don't do it. But we're all going to have to wake up to this world uh, in which uh, people can intercept anything. And, and have, have and, you changed and, and, practices? You know, unless, as well? unless we have arguments like we're having at the moment about Snowden, they will, they will, because they'll have the technology, and the oversight is inadequate, and and it's going into a bad place. And I think that's what Snowden was trying to say. Have you changed practice at the Guardian in response to this? Yeah, we, 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 I mean, anybody who's working uh, on uh, on on stuff with delicate sources, um, you'll, you'll see we now publish our, our public PGP keys. Um, and we, we, we change the way that we talk on the phones, we, we change the way that we use email. Um, so it, I'm not saying we're good enough, we're not good enough, um, but I think we're further down the road than, than what I perceive to be the majority of journalists. What impact has this had on your kind of global position? The reason I say that is because, bit, uh, I mean, one could never, I suppose you, in a way, you couldn't have wished it better, could you? You launch in America, you launch in Australia, Guardian as a kind of glo- as a global brand. In a lot of places where a lot of men have ever heard of the Guardian, well, they're certainly heard of you now. Um, I mean, what impact has it had on your business strategy? Has it, has it moved the dial, as they say, in any sense at all? Well, I, I think there, there are probably two bits of that. One, one is obviously a lot of, yeah, I mean, everybody should know who we are now. Um, uh, I hope. Um, and, and, you know, that's had, a, that's had an effect on traffic. It, it's, interestingly, it had an effect on print, too, in, in that for about the last six months, the Guardian print, which, like everybody else, was going like that, has sort of pulled out of the death dive and has, has stabilised, which I think is not direct. I don't think it's people are rushing down to the newsstands to buy the Guardian because there's going to be another Snowden story because, actually, we're publishing them all online first anyway. But I think, I think, actually, and I can't say this without sounding slightly immodest. I think, I think people looked at that story and thought that's what that's what journalism is supposed to be. That's what a newspaper is supposed to do. Um, and, 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 and so I think it, it changed. It's very forward, Ed Lucas, isn't it? It, <laughs> it? I think it just changed the perception. It, it you know, I think it in terms of, of saying something about a paper rather than just by me. It said, this is a paper that stands for these kinds of things, and actually this is why we went into journalism to do this kind of stuff. And, and so I think it's a, in, in marketing terms, it was kind of sort of brand reinforcement. And in, in, business, in sort of more, slightly more financial or business terms, what, what, where is the global strategy at? Is it, is it paying for itself? Is it still very much in what they describe as the investment phase? <laughs> <laughs> or what? That's um, no, definitely in the investment phase. Um, but I mean, you know, that, that, that's the beauty of having of having a trust. So a, a, a trust. You mean the, trust. I mean, there, were, there were two beautiful things about this during this phase. One was that there were there were explicit attempts to nobble me, um, and uh, I was able to just say, "Sorry, don't talk to me. Talk to the Scott Trust." And then Liz Ford was able to write a letter saying, I'm sorry, we, we can't influence the editor in any way. <laughs> um, so there was no way of nobbling the editor. So that's a, 
brilliant thing about the Scott Trust. Sounds like the BBC. Can't tie them, them down either. If, if only, if only. Um, so who tried to nobble you? Well, I mean, there were all these, these groups, there were groups of MPs who, who, who demanded meetings. They kept writing to Liz Morgan saying, we, we want meetings with you. And there were, there were about 10 of them that were going to go into Liz Morgan and tell her to tell me to shut up. And she was able to write back and say, I, I'm, I can't. As the chairman of the Scott Trust, I can't tell him what to do. I can sack him, um, but I can't tell him what to write. So that was wonderful. But the other brilliant thing about a trust is that it can say, we can take a 10-year view of the, of the revolution that's going through the industry at the moment. The future of the Guardian is clearly global because two-thirds of our readership is now abroad. So let's invest in that. We will lose a bit of money to begin with, although we, we found this wonderful benefactor in Australia who's underwritten the Australian thing. Um, but that's what we believe is going to happen. And that's much better than having a shareholder ownership where you've got quarter-on-quarter quarter, um, reporting and you start cutting everything. Are you comfortable with... I mean, your Australian benefactor, I'm sure, mm. is a jolly nice chap. Um, are you comfortable with the way that, with the way that journalism's going in this? Is there, I mean, half, half of me thinks, well, look, it's just like, you know, the press barons of old. It's mm. the Beaver Brooks and the whoever's. But, you know, you've got... You mean a wonderful benefactor. Well, it's your benefactor. Yeah. It's your benefactor. But also, in, you know, also out here in the world, you've got Bezos, you know, who's brought the yeah. Washington Post. Uh, you've got Pierre Omidyar. From you know, ex of yeah. eBay, yeah. you know, about whom I don't know, I know virtually nothing, who is mm. now funding mm. to the tune of many, many tens of millions mm. the Glenn Greenwald business. Is there, and you've railed against, uh, you know, um, over concentration of ownership and all mm. this stuff. Is, is there, are you comfortable the way that, insofar as journalism is now depends upon these sorts of people to keep it going, are you comfortable with that? I think it, I mean, Broadly, it's good if people are coming in and interesting people like, like Bezos, who's you know, got a great technological background, and, and Amidia. Um, so broadly, I think it's good if these people come in as a countervailing force against the, the behemoths of the old media industry. Um, up to this point, the, 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 as long as we are clear about what their motives are. So the astonishing thing that the Scott family did in 1936 was to, was to say we're going to give away for a pound uh, our ownership of the Manchester Evening News and Guardian which would have been worth let, let's say a, billion, a, a million in, in, in current money um, so they gave it away for a pound and put it into a trust in which they, they, they foreswore any attempt to influence the, the editor at all so it was, they gave it away for a pound, they got nothing in return except this liberal organisation which they wanted to live forever. Um, so if, if Bezos and Omidia are like that, what's not to like? It's absolutely brilliant. Are they? I don't know. We, we, we won't know, will we? Um, um, if it turns out that they want to go in and advance a particular uh, point of view, then that, that, that doesn't necessarily invalidate it. It, it just is a, it's a different kind of organisation. Do you think, thinking sort of, it's going to become a bit scattergun now, apologies, there are a few things I do need to get to with you, but in terms of sort of BuzzFeed and, and you know, BuzzFeed is interesting because it's, and Vine, the Vice rather, and all of that, do you, do you think the future of news will remain, will remain words, or is it really going to become pictures? Oh, or is it going to be audio well, all of All of the above, isn't it? I would, I would have thought right. that... that, that um, Can you compete with BuzzFeed? In the um, end, 
Oh, yeah. I mean, BuzzFeed is only about three minutes old, isn't it? Um, and and it, it hasn't yet gone through its sort of, you know, the, the, it's, 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 you know, it's going to float at some point and the owners will go off and, um, and it's got, you know, many teething problems to come. It, you know, it's really interesting and smart at what it does. But it, but, we, it, but, we, but it also it does appear. I mean, it would appear that the the, the visual side of things, yeah. uh, especially short form yeah. or the rest of it, yeah. uh, albeit it, yeah. with a mixture of things which you might have seen, on, which might grace any self-respecting yeah. tabloid front page, yeah. along with other stuff that's really kind of quite significant, perhaps yeah. you might argue, that that, uh, yeah, that the, the, new, the new generation is accessing their news that way. They're not reading. They're not reading papers in any form, online or in. Or is that wrong? Well, I don't think that's right. I mean, we've, we've got 90 million, 90 million people come to the Guardian site every month. Um, so we've sort of, we're, we're up there now, not, almost neck and neck with the New York Times as the, the biggest player, if you take mail out of it, because mail's doing something slightly different. Um, but, but um, I mean, there, there are people who like reading really long stuff. There are people who like reading lists. There are people who like... Um, um, Videos, people who like interactives. So, you know, again, I mean, if BuzzFeed is three minutes old, this whole thing is only five minutes old, uh, and we're making it up as we go along. Um, but we find an appetite, uh, appetite for, for long reads, but, but when, once you get on these mobile phones, um, probably long reads are not the first thing that somebody wants in the morning. So maybe that people want different kinds of things at different times of the day. Going back to the Bezos and um, OBDR and Whatever, maybe Google. Uh, when the phone hacking thing started to break open, I, I read a piece that you, 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 I think, in fact, there was a meeting at the LSE, I think, and I can remember you railing again uh, on the issue of plurality, mm. because there's, there was murder with you know, 40% of the press, and there was the Sky deal in the offering and all the rest of it. Uh, it felt like a bit of a moment, that. Do, do you see that happening again? Do you think, or, or if there's a threat to plurality in the new world, post phone hacking, mm. post Leveson, and, you know, and literally new world, are there threats to plurality in there, do you think? Well, I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, it, it, is, it is dangerous, and the, the significance of the phone hacking story was, for me, how all, all the checks and balances you thought existed in British public life, the police, parliament, the press, the press regulator, all turned a blind eye, or worse, you know, the press regulator blamed us, not the, not the news of the world. Like, and you saw fear in the eyes. I, I, I don't exaggerate. I saw fear in the eyes of people who I tried to involve in that story who just did not want to take on News International. They, they would take on many people, but not News International. Like, like, that, like, like who? Other journalists, um, MPs, people in public life that I went to to try and the police. I mean, all the people you, you know, I was trying to sort of build some sort of um, uh, human shield around the Guardian because, because these were nasty people to be up against. You know, we've, we've seen, it's been laid bare what they were doing. Uh, uh, and, and so it was not an irrational fear of this company. It was a very, a company that was prepared to use very nasty methods to undermine people it wanted to get at. Um, now, the reason... I think it, it got to that situation was because it had a 40% stranglehold on the, the national press. Um, and that, that is why plurality to me was the big issue that Leveson never quite got to grips with. And it's a difficult subject because I remember that LSE debate. It turns into a tremendously wonky argument which only 
competition lawyers and analysts can really understand because it, you know, what's the share of a market? Is it a European share? Do you include the BBC or not? And after three minutes, everyone's asleep, and, and it, it's just too hard. But, but that, is, that is an issue which is not going to go away. Do you, do, you think, do you think the threat to plurality in the future uh, will concentrate on ownership? Is it going to come from a traditional newspaper? Or is it more likely to come from you know, Google and their algorithms? Or a media? Well, uh, Google's a worrying company. Um, I, you know, I think there are things about the BBC that are worrying. Um, you know, it'll be really interesting to see how the situation in Turkey resolves itself. You know, if you, if, because I, I guess a, a lot of us, I, I mean, I remember speaking to, to journalists from Turkey a year ago saying it, everything's going to be all right because we've got Twitter and Twitter is going to be the countervailing force to these uh, press barons who've been nobbled in, in Turkey. And, and then they switch off Twitter and yesterday they switched off YouTube. So, um, are people going to be able to get around those things? Because if, if they can't, then our faith in the new media is not going to be um, as quite as utopian as, we, as some of us have. Can I just ask you one question about uh, um, phone hacking, the story and the, and the Guardian's role in it, and all of which you say is mm. self-evidently true, um, a, a major contribution to road safety mm. and all the rest of it, mm. so you know, three cheers for that. Um, it is believed in some quarters that the timing of the publication of the Millie Dowler story, which is as you recall, mm. the moment at which this story jumped big time mm. from brewing nastily, going to come out at some mm. point, and coming out in bits to kind of every other front page, mm. and off it went, and it occasioned Cameron's big mere copper speech and all the rest of it. It is believed in some quarters, not least uh, what used to be called News International, that the timing of the publication of that story was specifically to do with the Murdoch, the News Corp bid for Sky, mm. which you and lots of other people were concerned about. Mm. Is that true? No, it's completely not true. It, it was... Um, uh, I mean, Nick, you have to understand how Nick, Nick Davis was doing the story. Nick, Nick doesn't, live, doesn't live in London, he lives in Lewis. Um, and the way that Nick and I worked together over the years was he would come and say, I want to do drug dealers, I want to do um, prisons, and that. And I'd say, that's great, I'll see you in six months' time. And he would go off and, and I would give him a, a, a lot of leeway and then he'd come back with the story. Um, but we didn't talk about it uh, from day to day. And on, on the phone hacking, he would come and see me uh, from time to time, more regularly than every six months, um, and, and say, this is coming up. The, the Millie Dowler story, I think I had, I think it was about 48 hours notice. He said, I think, I think this is going to be quite big. Um, but he, he, I mean, he knew that these guys did, but he was just a hack, and, and the, the story came along, and he stood it up, and we ran it. Um, so you published it as soon as you could? Yeah, I, I think, I, think I, I saw it for the first time on the Sunday, a draft of it, and we edited it on Monday morning, we published it on Monday afternoon. Um, so the notion that we've been sort of holding, holding it back in order to scuffle the Beast Guy be a deal is not... True. And do you think the, the bit of that story, which again often gets raised now because, mm. it's, because it's been called into doubt, mm. that one element of the story mm. was that the News of the World ha had allegedly um, deleted voicemails from mm. Millie Dowler's voicemail mm. in order to leave new, new messages, to mm. allow new messages to mm. be left or whatever it was. It now appears that that's uh, not true, or certainly not, certainly not proven. No one appears to be able to say convincingly yeah. one way or the other, but it appears not to be true. Do you think the story would have had the impact it did? Without that detail, which turns out to be incorrect. Yeah, I mean that 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 was a, that was the 
that was something like the, the third paragraph, the fourth paragraph, and I, I actually went back to see how, how the other papers had reported at the time, and most of the other papers didn't actually even report the deleted bit. Um, and when you say you, you think it's not true, actually the, the police in, in Leveson came back and said, actually, we can't tell, we, we've got no idea. Um, Millie Dana's parents certainly believed it to be true, but if you know, if you know what the police, what we know now, yeah. you, you probably wouldn't have thought. I, I, I would have, I would have, I would have qualified it by saying that that that, that maybe that, that she believed this to be true, yeah. and there was a meeting with senior policemen where she said, "I think this is what has happened," and the police said, "That is a perfectly reasonable assumption." So I would, I would have qualified it. But I mean, we now know from from the trial that's going on at the moment that in fact the News of National were discussing closing the News of the World a few weeks before that because they thought the story was to- so toxic and it was they who were making the explicit link with the B-Sky B-Deal. They thought this, 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 this publicity is becoming embarrassing. I'll tell you what, why don't we close the news of the world because it, it, could, it could impact on our chances of getting B-Sky B. So, to, to, I mean, you now realise that to, to blame the Guardian for the closure of the news of the world, which is always a stupid thing to do anyway because it, I would never have closed it. That was Murdoch's decision. But they were talking about closing it if you even him, before the Guardian story. If you were him, you wouldn't have closed it. No, no, not not the whole. Well, I mean, I, I think I think it was an act of vandalism. Um, it was a, it was you know I didn't like some things that they did, but it had a 160-year history of, of campaigning journalism, um, and and now that we know actually his true motive was that he felt this was going to be bad for his other business, it was a it was. Uh, it was a real act of vandalism, but but um, uh, but that's that's completely at his feet. Before opening up, just let me ask you about one more thing, which is um, press regulation. Mm. <laughs> no, wake up, please. <laughs> um, bear with us. Mm. So I, I, again, I, I remember you wrote a piece um, in the aftermath of Leveson mm. uh, when the press were considering what they had, what they should do. Mm. You wrote a piece about the meeting in the Delawney Hotel. Mm where there were 47 Leveson recommendations. All the editors, everyone is there. Mm. James Harding, at the time editor of The Times, now director of news at the BBC, mm. he's chairing it. They're all, everyone is there. And you, you said in your piece, the 47 Leveson recommendations, six were rejected because they were about recognition. Mm. No, that story, as it were. Mm. Five were amended in, in entirely reasonable terms, you thought, mm. and 36 were agreed. Mm. So if that's where the press was then... Mm. Uh, how's it got to where it is now, which is not quite in that position as this? Uh, well, I don't know, because, um, because, because, because the, whole, the whole process was a bit of a mystery, because there was this breakfast, uh, and the entire national press were there. Uh, and it took about an hour and a half. James Harding was chairing it, and we agreed to most of Leveson. Everyone said it can't go on like it is, and there were a few clauses... Uh, which we decided we would have to take away and work. But, but no one said this is a ridiculous thing, this is a ridiculous report. It was kind of, we can live with most of this. Um, and then what happened was that, that then, then people said, oh, well, the, the, that's no good because the regional papers weren't there. Um, uh, and so the regional papers sort of appeared and it got taken away from that group and went into another group and then it went into private discussions with the Conservative Party, not with the Liberals or the, or the Labour. Uh, and something emerged in February which was wrapped up in this thing, which I think was tremendously complicated, which was the Royal Charter. Um, 
So it, it's, it's a slight mystery to me because I wasn't part of those discussions or I wasn't part of many of those discussions how this broad consensus that actually we could live with most of Leveson with the, with the caveat that there were still things to talk about became involved in this sort of enormous thing that has dragged on ever since. So two, two questions then. First of all, uh, the uh, government, you, you described the Royal Charter thing as a constitutional pantomime hoax. Um, was, was I that polite about it? Yeah, you were. I read it. Yeah. You said some other things too. Yeah. But you, anyway, um, so what is your view of whether or not a new press self-regulator should seek recognition? Mm. And, and if one did, would you join it? Is, is that it's, it, well, it's, 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 it's a red line for, yeah, for it, a lot of people. It's become a red it, line. It's, um, is it for you? It's such a sort of arcane subject now that there will be only two people in the room, and I can spot them who now understand. Um, the, the, the Royal Charter was, was a, a, a pantomime horse. It was a medieval piece of nonsense. The, as I lived through Snowden and, and I saw all these MPs trying to haul me before Parliament, get me thrown in jail, call in the police, I thought, they've fallen at the first test. You know, this is the first hard test that Parliament's had and this is how they behave. So I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want, I've got one fan here. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, Ed, it's Ed Lucas's brother. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I really don't want anything to do with the Royal Charter. Um, so that, that was a very complicated thing. What was the Royal Charter trying to do? The Royal Charter was trying to give legal force to the thing that would have brought in the carrots and sticks, which would have solved some of the hideous problems of cost around serious public interest journalism. Um, so there's a problem. If you dump the Royal Charter, you, 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 how, do you, how do you deal with those costs and benefits? Well, you can, you can say, well, well, that's too complicated. So we'll shove that out the side. And then you've got the regulator itself. Uh, and my test of the regulator is it has to be independent of the press. And it has to be independent of parliament. Uh, but the press has to have a role in this. The press has to have a role in it. I mean, Leveson, again, sort of couldn't quite decide if he wanted independent regulation or self-regulation. He used those terms as if they were um, the same. But you accept that if it is self-regulation, the press I, I, would, I would, yeah, no, of course, of course. And I, I think, actually, the, the bones of Ipso are not bad. Um, and it will be better than what went before. But there is still this thing at the heart of it, which used to be called press Boff and is now called the regulatory funding body. And if that were used in the way that press Boff were before, then that would be worrying. So, but, but I the, think but the, the, the people behind Ipso would say, well, it can't be because the rules don't allow it to be. It can't be. They, they'd say that the regulatory finance under the constitution yeah. can't be, can't do what the yeah. North used to do. I mean, well, the, the, the problem is, and this, this is where it gets all so okay. technical, it, once you've taken the recognition body out because that's got the Royal Charter squatting on its back, I mean, I, I would like to see the, the Ipso have some kind of whatever it is, an, aud an auditor, a, a, a review panel, a court of appeal. So, so, so to establish its own recognition yeah. system. So we've said, look, okay. we're, we're, we haven't said we'll join it, we haven't said we won't join it. I think the Guardian's in the same position as the FT and yeah. the Independent. And actually, we're the, the Guardian's the only paper that's been talking to everybody throughout this. We've seen hacked off, we've talked to all the political parties, we've talked to the victims, um, and um, so I don't think it's an extreme position to say we'll, we're, we're, we're taking some, uh, you know, a cautious approach. Let's see who's appointed chair, 
and let's then talk to them and see how robust it really is. So is, is the most likely outcome, do you think, the most likely, I mean, you can no one hold this, of course, but the most likely outcome that the Guardian will end up going with Ipsa? I, I don't know. I don't know. And, and, you know, just as... I mean, the, the Scott Trust does have a view on this, you know, as they're entitled to do. They, they, they own the paper. Uh, and, and what is it? Well, they, they, they have... Their view, I mean. They, yeah, they have their view on it. They're, they're going to discuss it again soon. What is it, the view? It's, they're going to discuss it again. I see. <laughs> a very guardian. Um, uh, who would like to ask a question, make a contribution? Uh, we have to be reasonably quick, so we'll get two or three in at once. I don't know where the microphones are. Start with those two chaps sitting together there. And there's a lady here, down here on the left, on your right, sorry, down there. So, chaps, do tell us who you are. Uh, my name's Edwin Smith, I'm a freelance journalist. Um, it seems to me that we have a problem where, with the debate about Snowden. There are two extreme sides. We had Ed Lucas say before that the damage done to national security is so great that the revelations about security services, excuse me, spying on private citizens uh, were insignificant in comparison, effectively. And then on the other side, we have The Guardian, all else, saying <coughs> that despite what the experts say, it's impossible to have any degree of certainty the security services have been themselves damaged. So neither seems like a really credible position. Surely the truth is somewhere in the middle. Okay, next chat. And then when we get done that down here. John Silcox, freelance. Um, I'm getting back to the title of this, uh, this debate, Taking on the World. We've spoken about The Guardian uh, growing internationally, but what we have sort of haven't spoken about is rather what The Guardian is doing in terms of local journalism. And I'd like Alan to... Tell us if that's a scope that you're looking to expand into. My name is Vanita. I cover media and entertainment out of India. Uh, I wanted to ask Alan, at India, in India we're facing this whole issue of media ownership and the quality of media ownership. And in your case it's a trust. Uh, and we see the BBC as, as reasonably good journalism, frankly, from standing from where we are. Does, the, does a, only a not-for-profit owner help create uh, good quality news organizations? I mean, is that the only model that can work for liberal, high-quality journalism? Alan, sorry. Okay, so the first question was the truth lies in the middle. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think I've, I've been careful to say I don't know the truth. Um, you may be right, I might be right. I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying I, I know that it hasn't damaged, I'm just saying uh, I think we're all going to have to be a bit more transparent about this. Um, and it's not simply enough to say, don't write about it.